All right, good. And uh, welcome to everybody. And thanks especially to Jane for being the co-host and helping manage uh, people coming in and out. We are, uh, during class, going to keep y'all muted. Uh, but then at the end, we are going to try to allow a little bit of time for some questions. And uh, we're going to try hand raising or chat. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But I'm very excited to welcome you all for tonight's class. Uh, we're going to continue to look at some of the background and the context for mere Christianity, because the more that you understand the context, the richer this book is going to be. And the context of it uh, is actually, I think, quite fascinating. So before we jump in any further, uh, let me start us off with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. I thank you for each person who's making the sacrifice of their time to be here. Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide us, that you would bless this time, that you would use it to help us consider thoughtfully what it means to follow you in such a time as this. Lord, we pray that you would guide our thoughts. We pray that you would inspire us through the example of those who uh, went to such lengths to be able to produce this book that we now know as mere Christianity. We pray that you would be with us, and we pray all of these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So before I get into anything, I wanted to just uh, talk about a couple of little housekeeping things. First of all, uh, each week I will be sending you an email, uh, usually on Tuesday, that has a recap of the week before. It will also have links to things that I talked about uh, during the class. It will also have an attachment of the uh, PowerPoint from the previous class. Those things will also be available on the St. Philip's website. Uh, if you are not on the email list and would like to be, uh, all you have to do is go find St. Philip's Church Charleston on the web, and that will take you to our website. And there are multiple places on there where you can just fill out a form or directly send me an email, and we'll be happy to add you. Also, the class is now up on Apple Podcast, and uh, the class will also be up on the church YouTube channel. Uh, we are in the midst of uh, installing fiber optic cable this week in the church office, so uh, things are a little slow on the technology front. Uh, so last week's class is not yet up on YouTube, uh, but it will be soon, and uh, once that happens, uh, it should be easy if you miss class to just follow the video. So uh, all of those things, I hope, will be of help to you uh, in finding uh, ways to go deeper if you want to. As I said last week, I'm happy for you to just be on the beach and just show up when you want to. But for those who want to snorkel or scuba dive, uh, these extra resources that are in the email uh, will be a lot of fun for you. So I'd like to begin with our theme verse from 2 Peter 1. And as we talked about last week, uh, the word for knowledge that's in this verse is a very important word. It's the Greek word epignosis. And it's not a word that just means to know about, but it means to really know fully in the deepest sense of that. And as we mentioned last week, it is part of uh, St. Paul's closing in the 13th chapter of Corinthians, 
where he says, we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face uh, and that we will be fully known. And the, the word there is epignosis. So this idea that Paul um, is talking about there is the same one that Peter is bringing in here. And the idea is that when we fully know God, when we are absorbed in Christ and the things of his kingdom, grace and peace will be multiplied to us. And particularly in the days in which we live, which are a lot like uh, some of the days at the time of mere Christianity, grace and peace sometimes seem to be in short supply. Uh, so it should be a good motivator for us to grow in this. So let's say uh, this verse together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And there's so many wonderful things in this verse, but that knowledge word keeps showing up over and over again. And part of the idea of this is that we are called to be partakers in Christ's nature. It is that we are being caught up brought up into the work of God and of his kingdom. We're being drawn into the fountain of life that's in the Trinity uh, when we are really seeking after Jesus with our whole heart, which is a uh, great goal for all of us. So as we said last week, uh, there are three ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which just means you show up when you feel like it. Uh, you can be asleep. You can be reading a book. You can be whatever you would like to be doing. Uh, and you can just absorb whatever you feel like. And that's perfectly fine. I'm delighted to have you. Snorkeling, you can get involved in the things that are of interest to you. There may be some points that you like that you want to go deeper. That's great. Scuba diving, uh, there will be a lot of things, books to read, movies to watch, uh, scholarly articles to read. Uh, but nobody is required to do any of that. If you are as much of a nerd as I am, where you really like going down the rabbit hole on some of these things, uh, the scuba diving track will be one that you will really, really enjoy. And then again, on how to read this book, uh, a lot of people try to read mere Christianity by sitting down and just reading through it. And if that works for you, more power to you, but that did not work for me. I think that it doesn't work for a lot of people and the reason is that because this book was originally broadcast talks on the BBC, each chapter, even though the chapters are really short, each chapter is really loaded with profound material that needs to be chewed on. So I really think the best way to read this book is to read it out loud, one chapter at a time, and then to wait for at least a couple of hours or maybe even a day before you need read the next thing. I also recommend the C.S. Lewis Doodle uh, on YouTube. This is a great uh, way of being able to dive in a little bit more deeply, but have some fun doing it. And if you go on YouTube and Google C.S. Lewis Doodle, that'll come up. And there are a number of features on that from Mere Christianity. 
So as usual, I want to start with a little bit of music tonight. Last week, it wasn't music. It was the news in Norwegian. Um, and some of y'all got kind of close to that. Um, but I'm going to play a little musical selection here. And if you have any idea uh, what this might be, uh, feel free to uh, send a little chat. I'll see if I can actually get it to play. That's probably from the BBC. It's music from the BBC prior to it might be the introductory. Um, okay, so that's probably enough of that. Um, does anybody have any idea what that was? I couldn't hear it. Could you not hear it at all? Not at all. Oh, no. Well, I'll send you the recording then. Um, What it was was some theater organ music. And Mm -hmm. the reason that we were playing that is that, uh, as we talked about last week, the BBC headquarters was one of the major targets for the German bombers. And so early in the war, uh, the BBC decided to try to spread out some of their operations to different cities, but they didn't want anyone to know that that was happening and they didn't want anything to interrupt their broadcast. So they announced that they were gonna have several days of organ music, which was sort of a surprise to people. And they had this guy named Sandy McPherson, who was a popular theater organist. And the poor man came to the BBC headquarters and they had a big organ there and he played it 12 hours a day for like five days in a row while they were moving everything out uh, to the point that the BBC started getting inquiries about whether they could chained him to the organ and they were not allowing him to leave the building. But it was uh, a reminder that the BBC was in uh, dire straits during this time period. And uh, there was a lot of fear and anxiety As we talked about at great length last week, uh, the war was the context for all of this. And World War II in London particularly uh, was one really nightmarish time in English history. People were terrified. Uh, Death was literally raining from the skies. Uh, The functioning of the world Uh, had basically fallen apart for many, many people. And the casualties and the homelessness in central London were just astounding. Um, Over a million people that were affected, uh, just incredible suffering all around. And and the context of this was Lewis coming to London from Oxford, which was safer, 
riding the train in, seeing the flames and the city from the bombs, and then climbing over sandbags into the BBC building, into the studio. So he really was uh, taking his life in his hands uh, doing this. And of course, the reason that he did it was that the BBC wanted to express what it meant to be a Christian and to understand what the gospel was in these times of deep extremity for people. So uh, that was the context in which these books uh, came together and uh, eventually became mere Christianity. So we're going to review a little bit of that last week and then focus in a little bit on Jimmy Welch, uh, this guy who was the uh, director of religious broadcasting at the BBC. And last week, we talked about the fact that the BBC, as part of its charter, understood their mission uh, to be not only the news, but to share the Christian gospel. England being an officially Christian nation, and most of the broadcasting early on at the BBC was religious. Church services, uh, music that was religious, talks, all of that. But it was almost all given by clergy. And when World War II broke out and the Blitz began, uh, James Welch, or Jimmy Welch, who was the director of religious broadcasting, really wanted for there to be a significant voice of hope and faith being brought into people's homes in this time where they were so concerned and worried about everything. So as they did that, they were able to uh, bring together people uh, from different walks of life to address some of the crisis in the nation. But the, the faith part was pretty much left to the clergy. But Jimmy Welch really felt like that that was not sufficient. A lot of the clergy, and I can say this since I, was a I am a clergy person, a lot of them were really out to lunch during this time period. Uh, there were a lot of people who were uh, in the clergy because that was kind of what you did if you were an aristocrat and you couldn't make it in some other fields. So not all of the clergy were what you would call on fire for the gospel. So Jimmy Welch was trying to figure out what to do about that. And as we said last week, he had asked Cosmo Lang, who, as I said last week, has such a cool name. He was the Archbishop Canterbury, the person who was the head of the Anglican Communion and was, of all people, the best position to give a stirring message of hope to this nation that was worried that Hitler was going to come across the channel at any moment. But instead, uh, as we said last week, uh, Welch and his assistant found that Cosmo Lang's address was completely vapid and totally irrelevant. And Jimmy Welch was very frustrated about this. And he wrote this, um, and we said this last week, but it's worth repeating. He wrote this in 1941. In a time of uncertainty and questioning, it's the responsibility of the church and of religious broadcasting as one of its most powerful voices to declare the truth about God and his relation to men. It has to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women and to examine the ways in which that faith can be applied to present day society during these difficult times. You can feel the passion that Jimmy Welch was uh, consumed by in those words. And it's really, I think, a great message for us in the church today, um, even though we're not in religious broadcasting, 
But it's our job as people who are in the church, people who follow Jesus, to declare the truth about God and to expound the Christian faith in such a way that people can understand it and examine how faith can be applied during difficult times. And our country is in difficult times right now. Lots of the world is in difficult times and Christians are needed in this time to bring this message of hope. So as we said last week, Jimmy Welch had a radical idea, which was to ask C.S. Lewis to come do these broadcasts. All right, can you still hear me? Yes. Okay, I just got a message saying I was muted, but that must be so. Oh, I can hear you. Okay, good. All right, so Lewis uh, was 42 years old. Jimmy Welch had never met him, and Lewis was not a clergyman. He had not gone to seminary. He had not gone to theology school. He had none of the qualifications that BBC religious uh, speakers usually had. And furthermore, Jimmy Welch had never even met him, but he was so blown away by Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, that he wrote and asked Lewis for his help. And Lewis responded almost immediately, and then they carried on this dialogue about what this series might look like. And all of that correspondence is preserved in the BBC archives. And it's interesting because Lewis talked in that about how people aren't necessarily ready to hear the gospel as good news until they realize that there's a God and that they're sinners and that they have a problem. And so he and Welch kind of together crafted the approach that would become these broadcast talks uh, that would eventually be gathered together as the book we know as Mere Christianity. And Lewis did four series starting in 1941 and carrying through to 1944. Uh, All of this in the midst of the blitz and the bombing of England that didn't end until 1945. Uh, Lewis was incredibly busy. We'll hear a little bit more about that later tonight. Uh, And he ended up doing 25 addresses uh, over the course of this period that adds up to nearly six hours of audio. Now, unfortunately, because they were done live, they didn't record all of them because uh, recording uh, equipment was very scarce. But we will later on in this class listen to one of the surviving recordings of Lewis actually broadcasting. So you may be wondering who was the Reverend Dr. James W. Welch or Jimmy Welch? Uh, and so I want to just do a little quick dive into his background. Uh, because he is a remarkable person. So he was born in 1900, two years younger than C.S. Lewis uh, in Sunderland, and he was very active in his church growing up, the church with the unlikely name of St. Gabriel's Bishopware Mouth. <laughs> yeah, St. Gabriel's Bishopware Mouth, uh, or probably Bishopware Muth in British English. Uh, But at the age of 18, Jimmy Welch enlisted in the British Army and fought in World War I, came back from the war, uh, took two degrees at Cambridge at Sydney Sussex College uh, in theology and anthropology, and he got a first in each of those, which is essentially like uh, graduating summa cum laude. And he went from there and studied theology at Westcott House in Cambridge, 
And uh, that is one of the places when I've been to England uh, where I have stayed, still a seminary. And he studied theology and did very well and was ordained to the priesthood at the age of 26. And this was the era where the Christian Union, uh, which is related to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in this country, was really big. And Jimmy Welch was involved in that, and he uh, became very passionate about missions and particularly about Africa. So he joined the Church Missionary Society at the age of 26 and went to Nigeria. Now, this is sort of out of the box for uh, aristocratic British young men. Uh, So he went to Nigeria at this young age, and he was instrumental in transforming the educational structure there, and he established 17 new schools. This guy in his 20s at that point, establishing these schools and becoming hugely involved with the big expansion of Christianity that was going on in Nigeria in this time. And because he was so effective in these schools, he was called back to the UK to be the principal of St. John's Training College, one of the major teacher training colleges in the UK that was headquartered in York. And he did a brilliant job there. And he uh, came to the attention of William Laud, who would later become Archbishop of Canterbury. And William Laud recommended Jimmy Welch to the BBC. And that was how he became the director of religious broadcasting right when World War II broke out. And it is an amazing example of God's providence of the right man at the right time with the right gifts. And so he was pretty much single-handedly responsible, not only for C.S. Lewis and the broadcast talks, but for getting Dorothy Sayers, whom some of you will remember about from our previous classes, doing some radio dramas with Dorothy Sayers, including The Man Born to be King, which C.S. Lewis thought was so wonderful that he reread it every year in Lent for the rest of his life. And all of this happened because of Jimmy Welch's passion for the gospel. He didn't just get the regular parade of the London-based clergy and sit them in front of the microphone and have them spout alphabet things. He was really passionate about getting this out to ordinary people. And he received great acclaim for that. Uh, After the war, he was kind of famous because these broadcast talks with Lewis became a sensation with millions and millions of listeners. But Jimmy Welch's heart was for the gospel. And rather than staying on in a lucrative executive position at the BBC, he chose to resign and return to the mission field and went first to Tanzania and then to Nigeria and became a professor at the University of Ibadan there. And the remarkable thing about that is Jimmy Welch was always interested in trying to develop other people's gifts and challenge them. And he mentored all sorts of people who became major leaders in the Nigerian church and the Nigerian government and the Nigerian educational establishment and in the worlds of art and literature. And really astoundingly, um, a grammar school that he ran, uh, he mentored two guys who became some of the most famous people ever from Nigeria. And probably most of you have not spent a lot of time with Nigerian literature or African literature, but if you had, Chinua Achebe is one of the people you would know. His book, Things Fall Apart, 
uh, is to Nigerian literature what To Kill a Mockingbird is to American literature. Uh, it's one of the most famous books in that country, uh, masterpiece. Uh, also, the artist Ben Awanwu was in that school and was mentored by Jimmy Welch. And he is acclaimed as the most important African artist of the 20th century. And these renderings that you can see on the slide, um, there's a sketch of Jimmy Welch and a bust of him, both done by Ben Awanwu. If you wanted to purchase something uh, that Ben Awanwu had painted today, it would cost you over a million pounds. He was one of the official portrait artists for Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, so it's just astounding to think about Jimmy Welch and all of the different people that he influenced. And you may think, why does that matter? And part of the reason that it matters so much, I think, is that his passion for the truth of Christianity and communicating it to the world is one of the things that he had in common with C.S. Lewis. When you read their letters, you can see that they are kindred spirits, that their hearts are both on fire for the gospel and for taking the truth of the gospel getting it out of the stained glass windows of the church and bringing it uh, so that people confront it, confront its truth and have the opportunity to be changed by it. And the other thing that is so important about Jimmy Welch is that he was unwilling to give up or settle for mediocrity. Uh, it's pretty hard when you are a uh, manager, low-level executive at the BBC to say that you think the Archbishop of Canterbury is not very good at his job. That's a pretty radical thing to do. It would have been much easier for him to say, well, you know, I did what I could. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, I'm just going to give up on this. But he refused to do that. He kept fighting and trying to think about what can I do to help get the gospel out here, his passion was important in his work, and it was contagious. And then the last thing is that he decided to take a really bold and innovative step of faith to approach Lewis, because as I said, the BBC only used clergy people at this point for religious broadcasting. To ask a layman was profoundly shocking. But Jimmy Welch, even though he was a clergy person himself, knew that Lewis had the gifts that were needed and that he was the right man at this moment. And the result of that was that when he wrote him and Lewis met him eventually and they discovered they had this shared passion, they were able to, between the two of them, craft these broadcast talks that literally turned England upside down. Lewis became one of the most recognized voices um, after Winston Churchill, uh, it was really quite astounding. But I want us to just pause for a minute before we move on to think about what if Jimmy Welch had just settled? What if he had just focused on his own safety and well-being and failed to act? What if he had just thought about himself and his family and the fact that he was in a country at war and he didn't want to really be stretched to do anything for the gospel? Maybe he would go to church on Sunday and he would do his job, but he wasn't going to go the extra mile. Well, if he hadn't, there would be no mere Christianity. None of the thousands and thousands of people who have been converted to Christ 
through that book would ever have heard of it. All of the people that heard those broadcast talks and found their uh, hearts made strong and their arms bold and all of that, none of that would have happened absent Jimmy Welch. And it's a great reminder to all of us who are seeking to follow Christ that we need to be passionate about our faith. We are the salt and the light, and there isn't anyone else who is. The Christians are the ones that have this treasure, even though it's in jars of clay. And Jimmy Welch is a great example of using his gifts. All right, so I'm going to stop preaching and uh, move on to the next part here. And one of the things that was so remarkable about these broadcast talks is that they were a huge success. And we're used to the fact that C.S. Lewis is famous and we sort of expect they would be a success. But at this point, Lewis was not famous. He was not well-known at all. And the idea that people would be mesmerized by a religious broadcast talk is, uh, let's just say it's not self-evident. So there's a great story from an RAF officer named John Lawler who was in a bar Uh, during one of the broadcasts. Most of the bars uh, kept the BBC on all of the time in case there was an update about the war. So somebody had ordered a drink and the barman was about to hand it over and Lewis came on the air and Lawler remembers that suddenly everyone just froze listening to this extraordinary voice. And at the end of the 15 minute talk, there was the barman with his arms still up there and the other man still waiting for his drink. And a lot of people that you talk to in England who were alive during this time, including uh, my friend Lady Catherwood that I mentioned before, they will tell you that there was something absolutely arresting about these talks and Lewis's voice, that you felt as if he was talking directly to you, speaking right into your heart, and people stopped everything that they were doing and listened. And it became uh, something that people would plan their schedules around so they could be sure that they didn't miss out. So they got off to a roaring start. And before long, uh, Lewis was regularly getting more than a million listeners. And Lewis loved working with Jimmy Welch and working on crafting the talks. But he had a rocky relationship with some of the other people at the BBC. And part of the reason for that is that not all of them Uh, shared Jimmy Welch's passion for the gospel. And so when other things would come up, sometimes there would be a last minute schedule change. And there were a couple of times when Lewis's slot got moved at the last minute. And his slot normally would be Sunday in the afternoon. And it got moved to 1020 at night. Mm -hmm. Now remember, Lewis is doing these live. So he had to take the train from Oxford into London, get there, be ready to broadcast at 1020. And of course, this is the time of the night that's the most active bombing time. And then after the broadcast was over, he would have to go to the train station and catch the midnight train back to Oxford and not get to bed until three in the morning and then get up and teach undergraduates the next day. Um, Lewis, to say the least, was uh, not very happy about this. And there's a hilarious letter where he's, he's ranting about this. And he says, who the devil is going to listen at 1020 at night? 
If you know the address of any reliable firm of assassins, no-slitters, garreters, and poisoners, I should be happy to have it. Uh, he was not happy about that schedule change. And of course, he actually wasn't planning to murder anyone at the BBC, but he was quite frustrated. And as we just said, these broadcasts kind of came out of the blue. There had been nothing like them before that the BBC had ever done. And Lewis attracted millions of listeners, people across every social and educational division that there was, people of different races, people in the armed forces, people that were overseas that were listening to the BBC. It was a huge, huge audience. And because it felt as if he was speaking directly to your heart, people warmed to Lewis and many of them started writing him letters, either thanking him or asking him questions. And he actually started getting thousands of letters. Now, just imagine most of us today, uh, if we get a letter, that's a shock. But if we get one, getting around to writing a reply is something that might take a couple of weeks, I think, for most of us, if you're like me. But Lewis was getting thousands of letters. And he was always of the opinion that if somebody had taken the time and trouble to write him, he needed to write back. And so he answered all of these letters. And it was an amazing thing because as he did that, the people wrote him back again. So he was just creating more and more and more work for himself. And part of the problem was that uh, he just couldn't do it all. So he enlisted his brother, Warney Lewis, uh, who uh, had been on leave from the army, and he became the typist while Lewis would dictate these letters. So because they were so successful, many of the letters had in them a request for copies of the broadcast talks. And the BBC was not really equipped to publish. Uh, one thing we don't think about with World War II is there was a huge paper shortage. So it was very hard to print anything. And a lot of Lewis's correspondence um, shows that he was unable to get paper to write on. So he's writing on uh, the backs of train ticket stubs and other things when he's writing back to Jimmy Welch and the BBC. So he was uh, struggling with trying to figure out what, what to do about this. And so eventually through talking with Jimmy Welch, they decided that they would get these talks bound together and they would uh, publish them in three short volumes. One of them, The Case for Christianity, which was the first one that came out, followed by Christian Behavior, and then one entitled Beyond Personality. So these were published in sequence in 1942, 43, and 44, and then they were later edited and published together under the title of Mere Christianity in 1952. So one of the remarkable things about this is that we think, oh, well, of course it was a success, but it was not at all evident that it was going to be. Jimmy Welch took a huge risk and a huge step of faith and God ended up richly blessing that. So one of the things that helped Lewis to succeed in doing these broadcast talks has to do with another request that he received the same year in 1941. Remember, Lewis is still working full-time as a professor. 
He's writing the screw tape letters. He's writing the preface to Paradise Lost. He's working on the Oxford history of the English of English literature. He's a very busy man. But right uh, about the same time that he heard from Jimmy Welch, he also got uh, a request for a meeting from the very Reverend Morris Edwards, who was the chaplain in chief of the Royal Air Force, better known as the RAF, uh, the dashing fighter pilots um, that were the heroes of Britain and the Battle of Britain. And Morris Edwards traveled all the way to Oxford to personally urge Lewis to undertake an evangelistic and encouragement ministry within the RAF. And Edwards was sent on this mission by the very Reverend Dr. Walter Robert Matthews, who was the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, right up there with the Archbishop of Canterbury in terms of being eminent in the Church of England. And uh, Dr. Matthews had read some of Lewis's books, heard some of the uh, talk about Lewis as being a brilliant uh, scholar who was deeply Christian. And he insisted that no one but Lewis be hired for this ministry to the RAF. So Lewis was uh, very humbled by this request, felt he was totally inadequate, felt it ought to be a clergy person doing this, but they begged him. And so he agreed to do it. And what he did not realize was what an incredible commitment this was going to be. Lewis ended up being out doing these RAF talks three or four days a week for a lot of the war. And it was a very difficult and demanding time. So Lewis, uh, we have a little recollection from a squadron leader uh, who was a chaplain in the RAF who hosted Lewis. And he said about these wartime air crews, our casualties had been heavy. We were at the time engaged in massive night bombing attacks against some of the most heavily fortified targets in Germany and occupied Europe. A tour of duty consisted of 30 or more operations against enemy targets. After that, a man was taken off for a period of rest before being rescheduled for another tour. The grim fact was that on average, a man only completed 13 raids before being killed or posted missing. These men in the glory of their budding manhood knew statistically speaking that there was little chance of their completing even one tour. Now just imagine what that must have been like. Imagine these young men knowing that their country was depending on them and knowing that their lives hung in the balance every single day when they were taking off. But then imagine the chaplains, the chaplains trying to cheer and bring hope to these young men to get them ready to go off. And then day after day after day, having airplanes that didn't ever return. It would have been a devastating thing for the chaplains as much as it was even more awful for the young men who lost their lives. So the RAF chaplains were overwhelmed and at the end of their resources. And as the chief of the chaplain corps said, the RAF chaplains were nightly seeing off crews who did not return. Many were shaken in the concept of their calling. 
Others were finding it for the first time. Action at levels heroic and very raw seemed all important. Theology had been evacuated to safe reception rooms. It was a time that was a time of great desperation in the RAF. And Lewis felt completely overwhelmed trying to imagine what he could possibly say in these circumstances. And you can see here in this picture, um, Lewis at a chaplain's conference for the RAF. Um, that's Lewis without the military cat um, at age 42. And he was just overwhelmed by this, not only by feeling inadequate, but by overwhelmed by how important it was that particularly for these young men who might not come back, their relationship with God was incredibly important. So Lewis uh, traveled for four years throughout England, Scotland, and Wales on wartime trains where there was no heat, there's no food, speaking to RAF pilots and crews and trying to encourage the chaplains. And he spoke in a whole wide variety of settings, airplane hangars, Nissan huts, parade grounds, libraries, YMCA buildings, and station chapels. He also did a lot of different kinds of presentations. Sometimes it was a lecture. Sometimes he led a discussion group. Sometimes it was something called a brains trust, uh, which is kind of like a debate. Uh, and then sermons that he preached. And it was exhausting. And it was something that he didn't have a lot of preparation time for, and he found it the emotional and the physical weariness that came from it um, was almost debilitating. And one of the letters that Lewis wrote during this time period, he said, owing to my itinerant lectureship to the RAF, a map of my missionary journeys would be as complicated as those maps of St. Paul's, which haunted our childhood. I am hardly ever home for more than three consecutive nights and unable to arrange anything. And what motivated Lewis to keep going through all of this? Uh, Stuart Babbage, who Lewis became close friends with, said that Lewis really felt called by God to this ministry. And even though he felt like he was inadequate, that it was worth it to bring encouragement to some lonely chaplain who had been finding the going hard and to some of the RAF soldiers, uh, pilots who were finding the going hard and the future uh, prospects very frightening. But one of the most important things that these RAF talks did was that they forced Lewis to dramatically alter his speaking style. And most of us, if you've read Mere Christianity or Screwtape or some of those kinds of books, or even the Chronicles of Narnia, you will know that Lewis's diction is really crisp. Uh, he usually writes with short sentences. He doesn't write like a theologian uh, in a lot of these books where uh, theologians would have sentences that last for two or three uh, pages sometimes. Lewis didn't write like that. He's much more punchy. Uh, he makes a good point and then gives you a good analogy, uh, tries to put something relatable in there. And a lot of that part of his writing skill, he later attributed to these RAF talks. Uh, one of the things that Lewis said was that when he started these, all of his speaking engagements before that 
have been at Oxford. So he was either lecturing to effete Oxford dons who all spoke Greek and Latin and his talks were peppered with phrases in both of those or to uh, undergraduates or graduates at Oxford who are the cream of the crop, highly educated, big vocabularies and used to what a lot of people called Lewis's posh accent. So Lewis, when he did his very first address to the RAF, said that it was an absolute, complete, abject failure and disaster. Now, part of that was that he really didn't understand who he was going to talk to. He thought that they were looking for um, training about scripture study for some of the chaplains. So he went to give this talk, and the title of the talk was Pauline Soteriology and Linguistic Analysis. Now, I'm sure that that is something that all of y'all would find intensely interesting, and your enthusiasm level would just be off the charts for that. Uh, But these RAF chaplains, that was not what they wanted to hear. Um, Soteriology uh, is the the study of salvation and the doctrine of salvation. And here at St. Paul's uh, understanding of the doctrine of salvation Uh, looked at through the lens of analyzing St. Paul's letters and the Greek in those letters. And Lewis recounts in some detail what happened when he gave this talk. He said the first time he looked up, he saw that there were several people that had fallen sound asleep in the corner. He said there was another man who had quite boldly brought out a crossword puzzle and was working the crossword puzzle rather than reading Uh, or rather than listening, and that the entire group seemed to think that this was perhaps the most boring thing that they had ever been forced to listen to in their entire lives. But to Lewis's eternal credit, he stopped midstream, even though he'd spent a lot of time producing this brilliant and beautiful academic talk, he switched and started asking them about what was on their hearts. And then they began to have a real dialogue, and it ended up being something that was memorable. And as a result of that, Lewis asked a couple of people in the RAF, some of whom were from very different social classes than he was, to help him with his speaking, to help him find expressions and slang that he didn't know that he could use that would express things to this particular audience, uh, to help him be able to speak in a way that was engaging. And the result of all of that is that Lewis essentially learned to speak another language. It was almost as if he was communicating in French or something like that. He completely changed the way that he talked when he was doing these RAF talks, particularly to the airmen. Was one of the things that was interesting about the RAF is that uh, there were a lot of RAF pilots who were part of the aristocracy uh, who had volunteered because it was thought to be uh, glamorous, even though it was incredibly dangerous. But there also were a large number of RAF pilots who were not highly educated, who had not gone to Eton and Harrow, who had not gone to Oxford and Cambridge, who had maybe been plumbers or other things like that. So there was a whole uh, 
social gamut there that Lewis was speaking to. And of course, the RAF talks by providing that opportunity gave him just in the nick of time for the broadcast talks for mere Christianity. They enabled him to be able to hone those speaking skills for his audience. And they were particularly well-suited for this radio audience that, again, ran the whole social gamut in England. So uh, we can be very thankful that Lewis was offered this invitation. We can also be very thankful that despite the fact that he felt utterly inadequate, and despite the fact that he felt like it ought to be a clergy person doing this, uh, that he did it anyway. And the passion that he felt uh, really translated into those RAF talks. And he continued to be friends for the rest of his life uh, with a number of the people that he met during this time period. So that gets us uh, more or less through uh, some of the content that I wanted to hit on tonight. And what I would like for us to do as we start thinking about heading toward next week uh, is to look at the preface of Mere Christianity. The preface to the book is really, really important because part of what it does is it tells you what Lewis is going to do in the book and what he's not going to do in the book. So uh, I would commend that to you. Uh, if you want to think of that as your homework assignment, uh, you can do that. And uh, I want us to close, uh, as we will each class, with this uh, quotation that is at the very end of Mere Christianity. This is a quotation that is profound, and it is so full of uh, deep truth of the gospel that it will be life-changing if we ever begin to even understand even a little part of it. So please say this aloud with me wherever you are. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. And I want to just comment on that for a moment, because one of the diseases of our culture right now is narcissism. We are in a cultural moment where we are all very self-centered. I am certainly self-centered. I think all of us are. We like to look sometimes at the millennials and think they're the ones that are self-centered, but all of us are self-centered. And the problem is that when you look to yourself and you think you are the be-all and end-all, what you find is exactly what Lewis says. In the long run, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. And we've talked about this before that our 
uh, young people particularly are being decimated by the diseases of despair, uh, depression, suicide, uh, addiction to substances, all those things. And part of the reason I think for that is as Lewis says elsewhere, uh, that Christ cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because there is no such thing, which is why it's so important for us to do what Lewis did in mere Christianity, which is to find ways to take the truth of the gospel and express it to a hurting culture in a way that they can understand. So let me close this with a word of prayer, and then we'll have a few minutes if anybody has any questions. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time tonight. Lord, we thank you for the passion of men like Jimmy Welch and C.S. Lewis. Lord, we thank you that Jimmy Welch rose to the occasion. And we think about how that one man that most of us had never heard of before this class, that one man's obedience to you and faithfulness caused this great resource of mere Christianity to come into the world through the uh, work of C.S. Lewis. And the result of that is to change literally millions of people's lives. Lord, we pray that you would help school us and what it means to be obedient, what it means to be passionate for your kingdom, to step out in faith, to be outside the box, and to be the ones who are bearers of light and the darkness of this world. Lord, I pray for everyone listening to this, that you would equip all of us with the courage and the grace, and most of all, the love to be your people. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have any questions, uh, you could either try raising your hand or you could send a chat and uh, we will see if that comes through. I'm just seeing now that Elizabeth Scott figured out that that was the theater organ. So at least somebody heard it. So that was that was good. Brian, I just want to thank you. This was fabulous. I, I can't even tell you how wonderful this was. Thank you so much. Well, it is a, it's a joy for me to do it, and uh, it's just a privilege. I see a great question here from Jack Cahill, who I'm glad to have with us tonight. Uh, and his question is, if Lewis were broadcasting today, which medium would he prefer? The short form, Twitter, the populist YouTube, or the enlightened podcasts, or all three? I think that is a great question. Um, and I think that Lewis would probably be using all three. Uh, one of the remarkable things about Lewis is that he was a multi-tiered communicator, if you will. And even though none of these uh, types of resources existed then, he was using essentially the the equivalent of those during that time period, doing sermons in the University Church at Oxford, uh, doing these broadcast talks, doing the RAF. And I think part of what Lewis always wanted to do was to use analogy and to make uh, the Christian faith accessible to people. And so I don't think he would have been a snob about saying, well, I'm too, I'm too smart and too cool uh, to use these things. I think he would have been uh, taking these uh, 
media and using them in a way that would be transformative? It's a great question. Well, this isn't, excuse me, this isn't a question, but I just, I'm finding this to be so timely and encouraging. I, with everything that's going on, and I've had a number of people with the COVID, with the schools, and it's just, there's that sense of, of being overwhelmed. I can't do, what can I do? I mean, everything's out of my control. And I think these examples of, I mean, I'm just speaking for myself. I'm no C.S. Lewis, but what these ordinary, other ordinary people did in their walk and in the encounters, the people they encountered, whether it is a, a timely email or a timely phone call, even if we can't have person to person contact, they didn't know what they were doing and that it's an encouragement. And I think as we get into this book, you're going to show us even more so um, things don't have to be just all settled and all even in order for us to be able to make a difference. Yes, I would say that that is a great point. And one of the things that you will see um, that will come up as we walk through this class is how Lewis was continually pouring into other people, uh, whether it was people who were his peers or people who were his students or people that he just met on the street. Uh, he was always ready to speak an apt word uh, into any of those circumstances. And I think for so many of us, looking at those small things that we can do, um, particularly if we can encourage young people, um, you know, mentoring, uh, looking for ways to pour in, sharing books with people is another great thing. And just um, writing handwritten notes, uh, you never know that person that you encourage might be the next Jimmy Welch. Yeah, it's so interesting to me in the kingdom of heaven, how there are so many people whose names we don't know, but absent that one person's obedience, something incredible we probably wouldn't have had happen. It's like the, the guy who was William Wilberforce's tutor that helped bring him back to the Christian faith, or the man that led Billy Graham uh, to embrace the Christian faith. So that, that kind of... Uh, individual action, uh, no matter how small it may seem, getting out of our comfort zone and actually uh, trying to be that light bearer is incredibly important. Now, see, there's another great question. What contemporary today is much like Lewis? And I would say, unfortunately, there isn't anybody who is really like Lewis. There are people who are, who have some aspects of Lewis. Uh, I think Tim Keller is someone mm -hmm who has some of the aspects of Lewis. Uh, but the thing that is, I think, particularly unique about Lewis is that he was a world-class scholar in multiple fields, and he was passionately devoted to his Christian faith, and he was one of the greatest communicators orally and in writing of the past hundred years, and he was incredibly effective in communicating with a whole wide variety of audiences. His academic work is still used in doctoral programs today. And the Chronicles of Narnia written for children are still 
some of the greatest children's literature that's out there. So I, I just don't think there's anybody that really is like him, but there are people that have have aspects of him that we can be very grateful for. Yeah, but that's, that's a great question. And yeah, one of the things that I will also say that is another example, sort of like Jimmy Welch, is that uh, some of y'all have heard me say this before, but one of the people that wrote to Lewis uh, later in the 1950s, a 12-year-old girl who had read some of the Chronicles of Narnia, wrote to Lewis, and Lewis wrote her back. I mean, what famous person writes back a 12-year-old girl in a different country? But through that uh, reading and that correspondence, that girl uh, became deeply committed to Christianity and then grew up and married Tim Keller. And uh, they both have uh, talked about how influential Lewis's work was on their life and ministry. I didn't know that. Brian, um, I had no idea about Jimmy Welch. I'm so intrigued by his character and what he did. Is there something uh, written about Jimmy Welch? Is there perhaps an autobiography or a biography, his time in Nigeria and Tanzania and so forth? I am amazed. And then secondly, my next question is, is there a director of religious broadcasting for the BBC today? Um, what happened with that position? Those are great questions. So the first one, I'm going to go off for just a minute here. Um, someone needs to write a biography of Jimmy Welch. Mm -hmm. One of you maybe is being called to do that. But um, he led an incredible life. And so far as I can tell, and I've been pretty far down the rabbit hole uh, with this, I've been unable to find a biography of him. Um, the other thing that I didn't really go into that is so remarkable uh, that a lot of people, especially if you're not Anglican, you wouldn't know this, but um, Nigeria is now the second largest province of the Anglican communion with 18 million Christians in Nigeria. And the infrastructure and the explosion of evangelism and teaching in the uh, early and mid 20th century is what laid the foundation for all of that. And Jimmy Welch was right in the middle of all of that. And it's quite ironic to see England, which, you know, in the 1940s uh, in the BBC was really embracing Christianity, sending Jimmy Welch out to Nigeria, which really wasn't so much at that point. And now Nigeria is one of the strongest places for Christianity in all of the world. So uh, it's very interesting. I, this is, you know, I have about 40 books that I would like to write. Um, and <laughs> a biography of Jimmy Welch would be right up there. Um, your second question about the director of religious broadcasting, I'm not sure there's exactly that title, but there is still that position. Um, and they do still do a lot of religious broadcasting. They're required uh, in their government mandate. Um, but it's not exactly the way it used to be. It used to be that it was almost exclusively Christian, and there's still a lot of Christian programming. Um, Songs of Praise is one of the, the great shows. Some of y'all have seen uh, the Big Sing videos that I've posted from time to time of 5,000 or more people in Royal Albert Hall singing. That's part of a BBC series um, mm -hmm. that's still going on. Um, but it is... Uh, 
It's less than it used to be, but there's still a stake in the ground, which is great. Mm -hmm. These are great questions. Anything else? All right, well, hearing none, uh, please do try to check out the preface for next week. Uh, I would encourage you to underline or highlight uh, anything that's particularly meaningful to you uh, there. I would also encourage you, if you have friends that you think might be interested uh, in this, please share it with them. Uh, I really do believe the more the merrier with all this. So I'm very happy to have people and the uh, videos, hopefully we'll get that worked out where the, the video recording will be up on our YouTube channel. So it's great to be with all of y'all. God bless you. And I will look forward to seeing you next time. Take care. Brian. Thank you.